and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. Before we go to the future, I want to pull the curtain back a tiny bit on one element of podcasting. So you know how on pretty much every podcast that you've listened to, the hosts at some point say something like, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, or please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. You might wonder why we all say this. You might wonder why we specifically talk about Apple Podcasts when you might not even use Apple Podcasts. Here's why. Apple Podcasts is still by far the most common place that people listen to podcasts, which means that Apple has a lot of power in the podcasting world. If your show is high on the Apple Podcast charts, then other people are way more likely to find it and to listen. So how do you get your show high on the charts? Great question. It is sort of a mystery. Apple has this algorithm that nobody outside the company knows the details of, of course. But we do know that it has something to do with how many people rate and review the podcast. So this leads me to my ask of you. If you like Flash Forward and you want the show to continue on and you want other people to find it and listen to it, one of the very, very best things that you can do to make that happen is go to Apple Podcasts specifically and leave a nice review and a five-star rating. I'll remind you again at the end of the episode, but if you could take a few minutes, seconds even, and review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts today, that would be amazing. I do read all the reviews, even the negative ones, which do hurt my feelings because I am a human being, not a robot, yet. And to sweeten this deal, in the next episode, I will pick a recent review and read it in the credits. So that is my PSA on how podcasts work and why we're always asking you to rate and review. And don't just do this for Flash Forward. Any show that you really love, go review them. It really actually makes a difference. Okay, now let's go to the future, yeah? A quick note that this episode talks about eating disorders, so use that information however is most useful to you. Let's start in the year 2102. Two adults, please. Okay, that will be 35 and 84, please. You can use this card reader right here. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, you pulled out too early. Can you try it again? Oh yeah, sorry. There we go. Okay, here is your recipe, and here is the map of the museum. Okay, to your right, you find a rack with headphones. The whole museum is connected via those headphones, so you want to wear those all times to fully experience the exhibit. I would recommend starting here at the Orange Stories exhibit, which traces the overall history of food from today back about to a million years ago and the first archaeological evidence of cooking with fire. From there, I would recommend going upstairs to the second floor to see our latest exhibit on the state of the art of food sensoriums. Enjoy your visit.
Welcome to the Museum of Food History. Let's take a trip through time, shall we? To your right, you see a wall of food replacement bottles, starting with today's Nutritabs. As you walk, you'll see the pill bottles be replaced by drink bottles. You might remember these, of course. For about 20 years, these drinks were the dominant food product around the world. Notice the ways that the branding has changed over time. Before beverages, though, food was far more complex and confusing. Here we have a recreation of one of the most popular eating locations on planet Earth for nearly 100 years, called McDonald's. Step inside. I'm going to show you how McDonald's builds a, a Big Mac sandwich. It starts here with a lightly toasted bun, and then a pure beef hamburger. Sizzling hot. A slice of cheddar blend cheese and some crisp, fresh lettuce. Then, our own secret sauce. If you continue on down the hall, we go further back in time. Before the so-called fast food chains that proliferated in the 20th century, many people cooked using these small magnetized boxes. Microwave cooking units, like those in the NASA Lunar Receiving Laboratory and this test kitchen, are indeed revolutionary. Keep your eye on the chocolate cupcake; it rises faster than you can eat it. For a main course, how about a delicacy like lobster tails, ready in less than a minute, with no shrinkage or shriveling, since there is no furnace-like blast of heat. This is cooking by microwave, cooking without heat. Before so-called microwaves, the big innovation in kitchens was called an oven. These were larger boxes which heated food up using either gas or wood fires. Most people prepared their food and then put them in these boxes to heat them to a safe temperature. Now you might be wondering how much time all of this took. It seems inefficient, doesn't it? Not only does it take time to heat the food. But during this period of time, people had to gather up each individual ingredient in their food and combine them in a variety of time-consuming ways. In the 20th century, people spent about 10 hours per week cooking, and that doesn't even include the time it took them to eat. Hours every day spent eating the food they had spent hours preparing. But if you think these heating boxes are inefficient, let's continue even further back in time. Before industrial ovens, people had to gather around communal fires to cook their food. These fires were hot and smoky and very hard to manage. Here is a recreation of what they might have looked like. Imagine standing over this for hours and hours every day. Kids, remember this next time you give your parents a hard time about swallowing your Nutritabs. If you continue on down the hallway to your right, you'll see an even older form of cooking. Step now into this life-sized recreation of the Wonderwork Cave. This is the cave. Where archaeologists believe the first fire was used for cooking. 
step out now into the sunlight on the other side. What a wild ride food has taken over time. It might seem odd to imagine cultures built around preparing and eating food, but that was how humans lived for centuries. For the majority of human history, making and eating food has been incredibly time-consuming. Whole cultures rose and fell trying to get and maintain control over certain ingredients. For much of history, women were relegated to preparing food, which put them at a disadvantage. The newspapers were full of stories about foods that increased risks of cancer, or high blood pressure, or heart attacks. Homes were organized around kitchens and dining rooms, and pantries were storing and preparing and eating food. Today, we have moved beyond all of that, but it's worth remembering history and where we came from, and we hope that your visit to the rest of this museum reminds you of how far we have come. Okay, so this episode is about food pills. Instead of eating, we just pop pills and move along with our day. Food pills are not as common in science fiction anymore, but for a while, they were everywhere. I mean, I think anybody who consumes a lot of classic science fiction <laughs> from like the 50s and 60s and even into the early 70s will come across that trope again and again. This is Charlie Jane Anders. She's a science fiction writer and the co-host of a podcast called Our Opinions Are Correct. There was this strand of science fiction back in the day that was like, everything will be rational. You know, science with a capital S will be in charge and, you know, we will kind of leave behind all of our, you know, silly kind of old fashioned animal stuff and become like super rational people. There was a there was a certain, you know, attraction, I think, at one point to the idea that like along with all the other ways that we were making progress, we would kind of progress beyond all of our limitations as, as human beings. I definitely think that Charlie's right that part of the impulse to embrace the food pill or the idea of the food pill comes out of wanting to transcend our bodies, wanting to get away from uh, the yucky, messy stuff of um, having to um, slurp something into our, you know, maws. Um, we don't want to think of ourselves as having a, any kind of orifice, really. And this is Annalee Newitz, a science journalist and science fiction author and the other co-host of Our Opinions Are Correct. Our Opinions Are Correct is a podcast with a great name that breaks down ideas in science fiction and what they mean for real-life science and society. And I asked them to come on the show today to talk about where food pills show up in science fiction and, more importantly, what the food pill trope says about the people who wrote that science fiction. I am a huge fan of classic Doctor Who. And in almost the first Doctor Who story, they introduce this food machine that comes out with these little kind of like blocks of food that, you know, are supposed to taste like bacon and eggs. And there's a long scene where they kind of talk about how you can taste the runniness of the eggs and the saltiness of the bacon. It just... It always seemed kind of fascinating and, like, incredibly gross. And, in fact, Doctor Who quietly retired the food machine in the 1960s. Like, it appears in a few of the early episodes, and then they're just like, oh, yeah, we totally don't have a food machine anymore. They just, <laughs> it just kind of vanishes from the show because I think they realize that it's not, you know, of all the wonderful escapist fantasies on that show, getting to eat processed foods that are kind of weirdly sterile was not, like, the, the main escapist thing that they had to offer. 
So one thing that's really interesting to me about food pills as a trope in science fiction is that you don't see it in non-Western science fiction. In fact, you almost never see this trope show up in science fiction written by anybody who is not a white person. I mean, I think that, you know, to go back to what Charlie was saying about transcending the body, I do think, again, that that's that's a really big white fantasy, particularly in the United States, of kind of that white identity is this non-identity, right? It's we've transcended our bodies. We're just, you know, we're non-racial. We're non-everything. We're just the perfect kind of uber identity um, or, or generic identity. And so when you shed your identity, when you pretend that you don't have an identity, of course, you're going to shed food because, you know, the way we know our cultures and our ethnicities is often through food. Um, and so when we talk about kind of eliminating food, it's also kind of code for eliminating uh, race. So it's like, oh, we're all in the melting pot eating Soylent. We're going to come back to this idea of race and culture and food and food pills later in the show. But another thing that food pills offer in science fiction is kind of like a storytelling cheat code. Every single day we eat to say, we got rid of all that and here is a pill is, I mean, it's a shortcut to the unimaginable future. It's a way of saying this is so different. This is so radically unfamiliar that you can't even begin to comprehend this world. This is Helen Rosner. I'm a food correspondent for The New Yorker. Helen also pointed out another reason why food pills were such a staple of science fiction in the 1950s. So, you know, there was a lot of panic about the rise of female liberation. There was a lot of concern about the ways that women working outside of the house would affect the function of the home as its own operating business and operating culture. What happens when you have food in pill form, it's disconnected from the domesticity of preparation. I have been reading a lot of subreddit conversations about food pills and food replacement products, just kind of trying to understand the appeal of them to some people. And one argument that caught my eye was that food pills are implicitly feminist. The argument goes like this. Right now, women around the world are largely still the homemakers. They're usually responsible for shopping and cooking and then cleaning up after the meal. All of that takes time and puts women at a disadvantage to their male peers who don't have to spend those hours every day doing those things. So by eliminating cooking from the picture, we're leveling the playing field. This is something that people say today, but it also has historical roots. If you look back at the history of people talking about food pills, at least in the United States, is it goes back to the late 19th century futurists who were part of the suffragette movement. And at that time, women were advocating for the idea that we would be liberated from domestic labor by having food pills. In fact, the food pill as we know it was conceived by an American suffragette named Mary Elizabeth Leese all the way back in 1893. When asked to predict what life in 1993 would be like, so 100 years from then, Leese said that she predicted and even hoped that humans would only eat synthetic food. She predicted that people would, quote, Take in condensed form the rich loam of the earth, the life force or germs now found in the heart of the corn, in the kernel of wheat, and in the luscious juices of the fruits. A small phial of this life from the fertile bosom of Mother Earth will furnish men with substance for days, 
and thus the problems of cooks and cooking will be solved. Mary Elizabeth Lease is a super interesting person. One biography of her I read described her as, quote, more an agitator than a practical politician. We don't have time to get into more about her here, but patrons will learn all about her in the special Patreon newsletter. So if you want in on that, go to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod. So Lease saw food pills as a feminist project, something liberatory. Helen does not see them that way. I don't know if I agree that the elimination of domestic practice is feminist inherently. My ideal future allows for the performance and practice of domesticity. It's just not necessarily feminine. Eliminating work that women tend to do isn't inherently feminist. And eliminating food is not just a conversation about changing the way women spend their time. It's a conversation about changing, well, everything. You know, any conversation about food, which is, I mean, it's a little word that has so much in it, kind of by necessity winds up breaking down into a lot of little categories within it that we don't always explicitly articulate. And so in the case of something like a food pill, it's basically this pure distillation of everything connected to food culture This is basically a pill preventing death by starvation in the same way that, you know, a diabetic might have an insulin shot or somebody with heart disease might take blood thinners. Taking a daily food pill is just avoiding the disease of starvation, the disease of malnourishment. And it turns eating and it turns the preparation and consumption and experience of food into something functionally medical. Now, you might have noticed that I haven't actually talked about something kind of crucial here. Is this even possible? Could we distill everything humans need to survive into a pill? The answer is probably not. We could put all the vitamins and nutrients we need into a pill, but that's not the only thing that food is giving us when we eat it. We eat food to get energy to use, and one way of measuring energy in food is calories. So most nutrition guides say that the average adult should eat about 2,000 calories per day. The most calorie-dense food is fat, just pure fat. But even if you made pills full of just pure, distilled, caloric-rich fat, you could not get 2,000 calories into a single pill. Even super-dense nutritional supplements like the emergency bars used to treat severe malnutrition cannot pack that many calories into that small of a space. There's this paste thing called, I swear to God, plumpy nut, which is used for emergency treatments when people are starving, and it contains 500 calories in 92 grams of paste. Think like those goo things that runners take when they're running marathons. So in order to get all of our calories from pills, we would have to take a lot of pills. This is actually a joke in a Mystery Science Theater 3000 skit, where the super-advanced observers send the main characters food pills. You know, this is a small pill to be so nutritionally all-encompassing. I would imagine in this tiny pill is the equivalent of a full day's supply of nutrients. I'll bet you're right, Rebeflavin Breton. <laughs> One pill, perhaps. Though were you to eat only one, you would hardly derive full benefit from our remarkable pills. Oh, okay, so two or three pills. Fine, that's got to be all you need, given how advanced you guys are and all. Shh, 
with the simple use of what we call a spoon. Do you understand? Simply place a generous portion in your mouth okay. and repeat the process. So, a, a bowl then. A smallish bowl and you're set for the day, right? No, it would be pretty light if you held it to a bowl today. Right? Okay. Stop that. Four or five bowls. Eight, ten bowls of our non-food pills every day. That should be enough to keep your weight up. Yeah. The weight of your body, mm. which of course you evolved beyond. <laughs> well, what is the point of having these pills if you have to eat so many of them? I mean, what is the point? I will be totally honest with you here. The actual science of how food pills might work is actually kind of the least interesting piece of this future to me. I am much more interested in why these food pills are appealing to people and what their continued existence in our imaginations says about us. Saying, you know, why bother eating that thing because it's not maximally efficient from a nutritional standpoint is kind of like looking at somebody who's reading a work of fiction or watching a TV show or going for a walk when they could be running a little bit faster, which would be better for your heart and better for your cardiovascular health. Like, we choose all the time to do things for pleasure that may or may not have incidental benefits. And we don't demand pure asceticism. We don't demand pure efficiency from most of our lives. Here's where I stand on the food pill thing, personally. I totally see the appeal in some cases, when I'm in the middle of something and I don't have anything in the house for lunch, or when I'm running around all day and realize that the reason I am so annoyed by the person who clearly took more than 15 things into the express checkout line, come on, is that I have not eaten all day. And if there was a pill for me to take that would fill me up and let me move along, I would totally take it. But the idea of replacing all my meals, or even most of my meals, with a pill seems horrible. I like eating. I like cooking, even if I'm still pretty bad at it. But I know that there are people who would take these pills regularly, if not for every meal. And when we come back, we're going to talk to someone who would take the pills. And we're going to talk to someone who's a former pill wanter on why he changed his mind. But first, a quick break. Okay, so today we do not have food pills, but we do have things like Soylent, which is kind of going for the same thing. And before Soylent, we had Insure and SlimFast, which are the same products, just marketed at a different audience. When meal replacements are made for women, they are dieting tools, but when they're made for men, it's suddenly body hacking. Anyway, I wanted to talk to some people who would take the pills for pretty much every meal. So I asked around and I found out that a fellow writer and podcaster named Rob McGinley Myers is in the food pill camp. I've had like a problematic relationship to food since I was like eight years old. And I trace it back to when I was eight years old because that was when my family moved from Illinois to New Jersey. So Rob was the new kid at school and he was getting a lot of attention. A weird thing that happened was that all the girls in my class suddenly had a crush on me. And I didn't really know what to think about that or to do with that. And it just seemed weird. Then, in the way that these things happen with kids, all the girls stopped having a crush on Rob and moved on to another boy. Now, Rob wasn't all that bummed out about that. But what happened next did actually impact him. One of them came up to me uh, and said, um, you know, the reason nobody has a crush on you anymore is because you got fat. I truly believe that eight-year-olds are some of the cruelest beings on the planet. 
I also want to point out here that there is tons of research to show that being fat is not a problem, that the so-called obesity epidemic in the United States is more of a cultural phenomenon built to shame people than any kind of medical thing. I've recommended this book before on the show, but there's a book called What's Wrong with Fat by Abigail Segoy that talks about the cultural nonsense that Americans have generated around fatness, and I highly recommend it. But when you're eight, or really at any age, regardless of what the science says, being called fat still feels like an insult. It stings. I remember going home that night and like looking at myself in the bathroom and being like, oh, like I am fat. Like it had never occurred to me to consider anything about my body. It just, it felt like this like affliction that had, you know, I had suddenly contracted or something. From then on, Rob remembers feeling really conflicted about the food he was eating. Even foods that were quote-unquote good, Rob couldn't really enjoy them. Every time that I ate a, like a, like delicious food, I would feel guilty after I ate it. Like no matter how much I enjoyed it while I was eating it, I would feel guilty later. After college, Rob worked a handful of jobs and wound up in one that was really, really awful, which meant that he was more stressed, ate more, and felt less healthy. So when he quit that job, he decided that he wanted to change the way he thought about food. This was like 2009, so the iPhone had just come out, and there were all these apps. And one of the apps that I found was one of these kind of food tracking apps. And I combined that with jogging and suddenly realized that I could turn my eating into sort of like a math problem, like that my whole life eating was this sort of mysterious thing that like I would kind of fall down the rabbit hole and eat too much and not really know how much I'd eaten. And and suddenly with this app, I could make it all very precise. And somehow having that control, like seeing the data in front of me, like allowed me to control what I was eating in a way that I never had before. To this day, for Rob, food is best handled as an efficiency question. A math problem, some kind of game. I think I'd grown to enjoy tracking my food almost the way that some people enjoy playing video games like Farmville, where it's like part of the fun of it is like, oh, now I've eaten this thing and I wonder how many calories that was and, you know, plug that into the app. And um, it's like I'm doing Farmville on myself. And if he could replace even this calorie counting metric thing with pills, he would. I remember having a conversation with somebody about the the way they would eat on the Jetsons. And that was my that was my image of, you know, pills instead of food was the Jetsons. And um and I remember saying like, "Oh my god, that would be so much better than having to eat." And people that I was sitting with were horrified by the idea of, you know, having pills instead of food. So when Soylent came out, which is this meal replacement drink marketed mostly to tech guys, Rob tried it. I think, I feel like I heard somebody, somebody describe it once as aggressively bland, and that, that seemed accurate to me, but it also kind of reminded me of, there's a scene in the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum where he puts a steak through this teleportation device, and when he eats the steak on the other side, he's like, it tastes sort of like steak, but there's something wrong with it. And I felt like Soylent tasted sort of like pancake batter, but like without a soul or something. Suffice to say, he did not wind up replacing all his meals with Soylent. But he is still committed to this dream of food pills. I mean, my, my wife laughs at me when I've talked about this with her. She thinks I'm crazy to think that food pills would ever be a good idea. 
So Rob does not have an eating disorder, but he did raise this question to me of disordered eating. People who don't have a healthy or safe relationship with food. Like, because the thing that's so problematic about food is that if you have an unhealthy relationship to it, you don't have a choice about whether or not to eat it. Like, you have to. You don't have a choice, you know? It's not like alcohol. You can't give it up. And this made me wonder if maybe food pills could be useful in the context of eating disorders. If somebody has anorexia or bulimia or something like that, could food pills help them handle their stresses around food? To find out, I called Katie Gordon, an associate professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. And my research and clinical work and training has focused on eating disorders and suicidal behavior. Katie says that in her opinion, avoiding food altogether is not a great solution to eating disorders. So my general approach in this field is to try to not avoid the feared stimulus or the feared, I guess, the the feared situation. In other words, avoiding the problem does not make it go away. And food pills might actually make eating disorders worse. It would be easy to not take a pill. If you're sitting down for a meal, it's a little easier to watch someone and see if they're actually eating and and kind of see how things are going. Most of the time, people with eating disorders get treatment because loved ones notice that their eating habits are changing. If you notice someone is restricting their dieting or over-exercising, you could intervene before it even gets to the point where it's an eating disorder. But if everybody was taking pills instead of eating, there would be way less places to notice that somebody was acting strangely around food. If you're depending on waiting to see changes like significant weight loss, then that could really impede the recovery process. And the later you detect something like an eating disorder, the harder it is to successfully treat. The data suggest that earlier intervention tends to have better outcomes with eating disorders. So that would be a concern for me that the delay in detection could actually harm the prognosis for them getting better. Plus, for people with bulimia, a pill might actually be easier to puke up. If they induced vomiting, they could effectively remove the nutrition from their body, whereas when people are eating regular food, their body usually at least absorbs some of the calories before that happens. But Katie says that there are some cases in which a food pill might be helpful for people in recovery for eating disorders. One of the really crucial things that has to happen in recovery is changing the way people think about food. But it's really hard to change the way someone is thinking when their body is in starvation mode. When people are in a starvation state, it's very hard to work with those thoughts because of the level of thinking is just can be really unclear. Literally, your brain is not functioning properly because it is not getting enough energy. In that case, often the first step is trying to restore the person's weight before even getting to some of the thoughts. So in this case, food pills might be useful to get people away from the brink of starvation so that they can think more clearly. And food pills might actually be better for this in some cases than food itself. When people are recovering from anorexia, for example, when they first start eating, sometimes they can experience discomfort with stomach distension, and that can be really distressing. 
food pills could potentially prevent that stomach distension and make the recovery process more comfortable for people. But there's one type of disordered eating that might not exist in a world of food pills, and that's binge eating. And when people do that, they often will say different things. Sometimes it's that they haven't eaten in a long time because they're trying to diet and lose weight, and then they just get really hungry. But for other people, it's that they have these painful emotions and they don't want to think about them. And so they, they try to shift focus on eating a lot of food and distracting themselves with it or gaining some pleasure from that. And with food pills, that just wouldn't exist. I can't imagine that it would be the same type of experience to put a bunch of pills in your mouth. Who among us has not eaten our feelings away, right? After a bad breakup or a long, stressful drive in traffic or a frustrating day at work where your boss stole your ideas and gave them to some dude who has literally never done anything ever, just hypothetically, Who has not come home to eat an entire carton of ice cream or a box of chicken nuggets or a bag of candy corn or whatever your comfort food of choice might be? In this future where it's all pills, that kind of doesn't exist. Chances are they'd find another way to cope and, and it might not be adaptive. That's scientist speak for we might wind up replacing food with bad stuff. Maybe we all start drinking more alcohol or doing more drugs or wrapping ourselves in weighted blankets and never leaving the house. Who knows? So Rob would go for the food pills to this day, with some minor exceptions. But there's another person I talked to who would have at one point taken the pills almost always like Rob. But then something changed his mind. I mercilessly make fun of Soylent, as I believe you should. But I think that I, I think that I do it because there's a part of me that's like buried now, deep down, that's like, yeah, actually, that's kind of a good idea, huh? This is Mike Rugnetta. He makes a podcast called Reasonably Sound. He's been on the show before, you might remember, back when we did an episode about AI-generated religious texts. And for a long time, Mike didn't care about food at all. I really found food to be a chore. Um, like I, It was just like a, a thing I had to check off of a, a list. Um, and, you know, like I wasn't really interested in it. I wasn't really concerned with flavors or ambiance or like going to nice restaurants. Like I just wanted to get it done and like have the, to put it in like the worst terms possible, have the, the fuel or the resources to like get done what I, had, what I had to do. As a kid, Mike ate whatever his parents made. In college, he ate a lot of cereal and basically whatever the dining hall was serving. He just didn't think about it. And it annoyed him that he even had to go find himself some food at all. Then Mike moved to New York City. After moving to New York, I figured out that you could get a sandwich on every street corner. It was like New York City specifically had solved my problem with food by offering the perfect solution, an infinitely repeatable sandwich, no matter where I was. Did you always order the same sandwich? Always ordered the same sandwich. What sandwich? Peppered turkey with provolone cheese, with lettuce, onions, mustard, no tomato, no mayo. How many bodegas like knew your order? They were like, that's Mike, I'll make this sandwich. Throughout my course of eating this sandwich thousands of times, I would say probably five. Wow. (laughs) Like not all at once, like because I would, you know, in New York you move a lot and you move in different neighborhoods. But yeah, for the 12 or 15 years or whatever that I've lived in New York, It's been five bodegas that would know what I would order when I walked into the door. 
let me just repeat that Mike thinks he has eaten this exact sandwich thousands of times. You know, like you have drinks with friends and you're like, okay, what's your real life superpower? And someone's like, I'm always really on time. Mine was always I could eat the same thing over and over and over again and be fine. He could eat one today. He's still not sick of it. He says he had one about six months ago. The food itself is not a comfort. It's a ready solution to a problem. And that's what I find comfortable. That you don't have to think about it. I don't have to think about it. And I know exactly what I'm going to get. I can walk into any bodega and I know I'm going to get that. So Mike would have absolutely taken the pills. But then something changed. My attitude changed when uh, I met my wife and, you know, like had to have a life with another person. And I can't just turn to her and be like, well, going to go get another bodega sandwich. (laughs) And that's my meal. You figure out what you're going to (laughs) do. I hope you like this one sandwich. (laughs) Or like, I hope you like that I like this one sandwich and I hope you feel okay doing whatever it is you want to do. I don't know. Who cares? You know, like, I'm not going to say that to the woman who is now my wife. When you and Molly started dating, did you like, were there ever moments where you were like slightly embarrassed by the way you like think about food? Did you have conversations or were there moments where you were like, oh, wait, I can't let her know that I do this sandwich thing or like (laughs) stuff like that? (laughs) <laughs> you'll, I mean, you'll have to you'll have to ask. I can get Molly's here. I could get her on the microphone and ask her whether whether or not there were any very embarrassing things that I did. Did you hear me? Coming. <laughs> I get to talk about I get to talk about how weird Mike's food. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. I'm putting the mic. I'm putting headphones on Molly. Here, you have to just talk into that. How are you, Rose? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> um, so Rose was wondering whether or not there were moments where uh, my food habits were weird or embarrassed, should have been embarrassing for me. And maybe I didn't realize it um, when we first started dating. I think like I never heard, I've never, I'd never seen anyone eat combos until Mike bought them on a road trip. <laughs> and I, ref- I refer to them as human dog treats. Yeah. And I, fi- I find they, it. Oh my God. That's exactly what they are. They never go bad. It's so strange. Um, I, I find that so endearing. I find like people's um what do you call that? Like like guilty pleasures so endearing that I now I just buy them for him. When I like run into the gas station, I bring out the pizza combos and I'm like, guess what? <laughs> I mean you put you do put like hot sauce on saltines and stuff, and I'm like, and then I'll come home and you'll be like, I didn't really eat today. <laughs> Molly, have you ever tried the sandwich that Mike used to always eat? I'm a vegetarian. Oh, um, but I have heard of the sandwich and witnessed him bu- purchasing it many, many times. <laughs> but a decreasing number of times. So the sandwich was really not going to fly with Molly. And Mike had to kind of rethink food in his life. And so I think it was it was a long process of me figuring out, like, how to share a meal with someone and what it meant to share a meal. And probably two or three years ago, I got really interested in just cooking in the house. Uh, And so now I actually make dinner most nights. Food is not just about nourishment. Food is also about the, the experience of eating together and the experience of sharing a meal, which is a very physically intimate act. That's Helen Rosner again, the food writer at The New Yorker. You know, outside of sex, eating with someone is usually the most physically intimate thing that we do with other parties. It becomes an intimate moment, not just because we are two people with different sensory experiences of the world who are simultaneously experiencing a common sensory input, 
but also because it's a shared moment of vulnerability. There is still definitely a part of me that when I have to work in the afternoon and in the mornings, like I just want to focus. I don't really want to think about food. And if there's a pill that lets me do that, yeah, I'm on board. But like, I don't want to, I don't want to share. I have no interest in sharing a, a pill meal with my wife. That sounds less fun. It means something to cut a wedding cake. You know, it means something to say, hey, it's the Thanksgiving turkey or it's the Hanukkah latka or it's this, you know, the second week of July and our family always does a lobster boil. Like whatever it is, they provide these anchors to our calendar and to our culture and to our community. And that also can be like, hey, remember the time that like after so-and-so's wedding that had that super crappy food, we all piled into the car and we went to Burger King and we ate fries sitting on the hood of the car. So it's not that the fries tasted delicious and it's not that we freaking love Burger King. It's that the pursuit of food created a memory and it created something that brought us together. There's another thing that a pill can't replicate, and that's a cultural connection. I think a lot about efficiency with food pills, too, and just how in in the U.S., like everything's sort of wrapped up already. Right. And you only get the nice parts of meat, for instance, or like the really nice vegetables, whereas in the rest of the world, you use everything. This is Soleil Ho. She's a food writer and the host of the podcast Racist Sandwich. It makes sense to me that a food pill would come from a culture where everything is already presented most efficiently and like most pristinely. Like, of course, you just unwrap it. And, you know, we've been trained from birth, essentially, like with chicken breast, you just unwrap it and then heat it up a little bit and then you're done. Soleil's family came from Vietnam. And in Vietnam, like in a lot of other countries, this idea that everything we do should be maximally engineered for efficiency, it's just not as prevalent. Like that culture of food pills, which would be completely foreign to them. Like efficiency doesn't really matter to Vietnamese people. I'm sorry, but like they are a very chill people. And that's that's cool. Um it just would be so incongruous with their culture and just their sense of like what is valuable and what matters because time is not money there. The rationale for a food pill just wouldn't exist. So in Vietnam, this wouldn't make sense. But that's also true for a lot of Vietnamese immigrants and their descendants in the United States. Because for many families, food is a key link between generations. For me, the food that my grandparents made, my grandmother specifically, those things were how I understood being Vietnamese, you know, more than anything else, because like they didn't want to talk about the war. They didn't want to talk about the recent history. But, you know, the music, the culture, the food, they were the cultural keystones for us. And so like a food pill, right, uh, to, to to actually say no to my grandparents and be like, I, I can't eat this. Like I have a pill that would just be a complete like rebuffing of everything they've taught me. In many communities, restaurants and food trucks and places that prepare and sell food are community gathering places. I was just talking to one of the people whose family opened one of the first restaurants that served Vietnamese food in the country back in 1976. And they didn't initially want it to be a restaurant. Like it was supposed to be a pool hall and, you know, a place for Vietnamese people to go and just hang out and you know, decompress from the trauma of being refugees and being fresh out of the country and in Houston. And it was one of the very, very, very few gathering places for that community. And it continues to exist today because of that. Without these places, a crucial cultural location and connection is lost. 
if you're just eating a food pill in a hole in the ground or in your closet or whatever, like you don't have that sense of community. What are you going to do? Are, are we just going to like hang out in Slack forever? <laughs> that sounds awful. Food is a way to connect to an identity, and that connection can be especially powerful if your identity is marginalized. Because you're raised a certain way, you also develop a certain palate. And that palate, you know, has a, a bias towards fish sauce or a bias towards fresh herbs or, you know, really, really hot foods or really spicy foods. And, you know, that in itself is something that's so cultural and so much a part of like how, I don't know, like the ontology of being an immigrant and like a child of immigrants. For the most part, the people I see pining for food pills don't have a cultural connection to food. For them, food isn't a life raft. But for a lot of people, food is a life raft. Putting that certain sauce on your lunch or like putting soy sauce on your white bread for, you know, when you have toast in the morning. It's it's like a prayer. It's like a reminder of who you are. And, you know, I'm not spiritual, but like it, it is like that ritualistic motion where you have those senses kind of inhabiting your body and then you remind yourself like okay like this is where I am this is who I am in this context and I can kind of feel at home in this like one moment before I go out into the world where I am a marginalized person at least in your like silence cavity your home That's all for this episode of Flash Forward. This episode is already long because I wanted it to fit so many smart people in it, but we also didn't get to talk about so much stuff. So if you want to learn more about anything mentioned in the episode or any of the guests that you heard, go to flashforwardpod.com for more links. And if you want even more, you can become a patron and get the special patron-only newsletter, which this week will include a section about Mary Elizabeth Lease as well as a section about how eating insects relates to food pills. So go to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod to sign up for that. It's just $2 an episode. Also, you might have noticed that a lot of people on today's episode have podcasts themselves. And three of those podcasts are also on Patreon. Check out Our Opinions Are Correct with Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz, Reasonably Sound with Mike Rugnetta, and Racist Sandwich with Soleil Ho all on Patreon. I will put links to all of those things in the blog post that goes along with this episode. And please remember to go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems kind of silly, especially if you don't even listen on Apple Podcasts, but I promise it really, really helps the show. And it's free! Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The voices from the intro this week were provided by Tony Garcia, Fernando Galdino, and Ed Yong. If you want the opportunity to do a voice from the future on the show, that is one of the rewards on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod to find out more. The episode art is, as always, by Matt Lubchansky, who is going to come on the show in a few weeks, and I am so excited for you to hear from them. Stay tuned for that. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in the episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. And remember, again, I know I've said this 900 times now. 
rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help too. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.